and welcome to the Future of Work podcast series. I'm Jules Campbell, Global Head of Business Development for the Employment and Competition Antitrust Groups at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm really excited to be joined today by Kate McMillan, Specialist in Cyber and Data, and together with Alex Crevero, who's our Digital Law Group Lead for the UK. In this episode of the series, we are going to talk about the way we work is changing and the relentless pace of digital transformation. To briefly summarise, the future of work is based on a unique global client survey of around 400 senior leadership executives with more than 1,000 employees. The findings highlight that across all sectors and geographies, workers are becoming more vocal in articulating their views about the workplace, their employers and wider social issues, giving rise to new reputational risks. But such activism could also be a force for good. So, Kate, welcome. Thank you, Jules. Perhaps you can just begin by highlighting what change looks like across the digital cyber space. Uh, I think it's unquestionably the case that we're living in a time of seismic change uh, and the pace of change is such that people are finding it pretty difficult to adapt. Uh, we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution currently. We're seeing digitalization, the introduction of connected vehicles, data analytics and AI technologies. Uh, which are automating processes. Um, And we're also heading very quickly towards the fifth industrial revolution, uh, which is going to be focused on the cooperation between man and machine. In that stage, we're going to be seeing uh, people adding value uh, to tasks in production uh, and a great deal of mass customization and personalization. There's going to be a lot of change in the future about how we work, where we work, and even whether we work. Uh, so by the mid-2030s, for example, it's estimated that 30% of jobs could be automatable. Uh, there's going to be a huge amount of disruption in skills and jobs. Um, and of course, this is all against the backdrop of huge change uh, globally. We've got a growing global population, uh, 9 billion by 2040. Uh, we're going to need 30% more energy, 50% more food and 30% more water. We all know about climate change, increases in temperatures, and you know demographic demographic upheaval. You know which we've seen have a very significant effect on uh, the political landscape, uh, not least in Europe. Uh, and there's a compelling uh, requirement uh, for us to adapt to this huge change uh, in both our economic and social circumstances. It's really interesting, and I. Imagine for many that brings a huge amount of anxiety on the one hand and a huge amount of potential and excitement uh, on the other. But there's no question that it will require huge cultural change to meet both the client and colleague expectations. How do you see that manifesting? Well, I think one of the uh, most important things really in all of this is for business leaders to recognise that that uncertainty that you mentioned, Jules, uh, of the changing shape of the workplace can be really daunting to their employees. Um, And sometimes that will manifest itself effectively as an adversity to change. That adversity is somewhat understandable when you look at, uh, for example, some of these uh, torch-bearing type organisations, those that have fused their data and business strategies and are at the forefront of digital transformation as it stands at the moment. Many of those have started implementing either technologies or organisational processes that might well drive that anxiety upwards, for example. So if you take those torchbearers uh, 
many have automated rules-based processes to remove the human element. Now, of course, the benefit of that from the business standpoint is that it lowers costs. It can reduce the risk associated with human error. Um, the Alliance Global Claims Review 2018, for example, highlighted that human-made incidents account for four of the top five causes of loss by value of claims uh, each year, as it stands at the moment. But also enables you to drive through um, new potential business models, new potential mechanisms for revenue growth by upskilling and redeploying those employees into other value creating roles. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that if you are indeed uh, effectively replacing bits of uh, parts of a human's function with uh, a machine, an automated process, those, that workforce is going to be worrying about what happens to them when that technology does replace that bit of their existing function. Similarly, those torch-bearing organisations I mentioned a second ago um, are also leading the field because they've done things like implementing change programmes that effectively create a digital mindset and culture that centres around multidisciplinary teams and agile ways of working. Um, driver being behind those, of course, that that enables the cross-functional collaboration that is needed to adopt the transformation-driving, fail-fast approach to experimentation. The flip side, again, to that one, though, is that agile teams effectively require workforces to function in a customer-centric world that involves iteratively adapting their work product and schedule based on continuous testing and feedback. Effectively, what that does is remove certainty that employees would usually be expecting to have in their day job. So my view to overcome all of these challenges and embed a proper digital culture, business leaders need to not just implement technology or process, but tackle head on the changes to workforce beliefs, mindsets and behaviours that will act as a foundation to the adoption of that technology. They must recognise the value of processes that rely on human capabilities that cannot be replicated by machines. So those are things like emotional intelligence, creativity, empathy, particularly when those things are combined with technological skills. And of course, they must unlock that value um, by bringing each individual along on their transformation journey. And by that, what I mean in particular is that they need to provide a clear vision of where each individual fits within the future organisational state and to implement a learning and development programme that upskills those individuals' te digital, technological um, and general skill sets as well. I think it's really interesting when you pair, Alex, what you've talked about in terms of the endogenous change that organisations have to go through to embed a new culture with that which Kate was talking about in relation to the sort of macroeconomic and societal kind of changes that are happening at a, at a much sort of wider sort of level. Mm -hmm. And the two, to some extent, have to happen, you know, in conjunction or at least having a sense of awareness about the context within which organisations are operating. I think the social economic aspects are particularly interesting, but obviously we sit here today as legal and regulatory experts. And it'd be really interesting, Kate, perhaps to get your views on what you feel the legal implications are of this change and how they can best be managed. Yeah, I think that we need a very open discussion about the sort of world that we want to 
live in and work in. Um, at the moment, a lot of things are being dictated by code. And of course, code is binary. It's yes, no. And actually, as lawyers, uh, what we see in our cases is that the outcome depends on all the circumstances of the case. So it's not a yes, no answer. It's you look at the facts, you test the evidence, and then you come to a conclusion about what's right. And I think, you know, the law is a vehicle to safeguard human values. And we need to make sure that the safeguarding of human values is baked into everything we do from now on. So just to give an example, the law now requires companies to have extremely good sort of technical and organisational measures you know, in order to create a, a secure environment you know, for their customers and for their staff. And of course, that, a knock-on effect of that could be um, that employees are subjected to quite an extreme level of surveillance. Now, we need to have an express conversation about that. You know, do we want that? If we don't want that, how are we going to balance the competing interests? Um, so I think it, it's, it's an absolute imperative at the moment that we have those express discussions uh, and engage a wide range of stakeholders uh, in the change that's being affected currently. It's interesting to use the expression sort of safeguarding. Obviously, that's a key component of maintaining order and control within any society. Alex, I wondered if you had any further views on, on that. Yes, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think the flip side of it is looking inside of your organisation as well in respect of the, I suppose, safeguarding, but generally uh, what the processes and procedures that you put in place as an organisation uh, to ensure that actually you're protecting yourself and your employees actually at the same time as well. So we talked earlier about the need to be driving through upskilling and understanding, and Kate mentioned rightly that that drive towards upskilling employees so that they can operate the uh, you know, for various different technologies within their organisation comfortably and safely and, and minimise the risk to your organisation as well. I think on top of that, we have to recognise that from a legal standpoint, digital transformation as a whole requires a shift in mindset for legal teams within four walls that are their organisations, supporting the business in their dealings with disruptive startups and agile ways of working can mean adopting lower standards and greater risk profiles than we would uh, than you would normally deem to be acceptable on um, to an organisation just to keep that market edge. Um, and that's made more difficult by the fact that I think each technology brings with it different challenges, which is very difficult then to, uh, to regulate uh, across, actually. Um, if you consider, for example, within an organisation, the challenges that are brought through the use of artificial intelligence, we've already talked about some of the wider challenges around the impact on workforce, for example, but particularly at the legal challenges that attach to those things. You know, when you're looking at decision trees and machine learning to automate routine processes, who owns rights in new intellectual property generated in the AI programs? One potential question that's there. But actually, from a data side of things, what rights are being granted to the AI provider to use your data within your organization? Now, you might well be using that, of course, for uh, your clients' purposes, or you might be using that across your recruitment data, your own internal HR data, or other data sets that you might have as well. So, really understanding actually what the application of that data set is. Where's the balance as well, I think, between um, the commercial benefit of mixing your data with other third parties to train the AI program itself 
um, with the competitive advantage that you maintain as a result of that same data being available only to you, or beyond the competitive advantage, the requirements that you have to, to safeguard that information internally as well. And indeed, from a cloud perspective, where's your data being stored? At the moment, we've got GDPR, of course. You know, is your data being stored in compliance with GDPR? Is there going to be a move towards greater tech regulation, particularly in the context of AI? There's been a lot of calls for that mm -hmm. um, recently. And if that is the case, how wide does that uh, net get cast effectively? We've talked, uh, you know, recently there's been a lot of conversation around um, explainable artificial intelligence and concepts that enable people to understand understand what these programs are actually doing with the data that they get. How much further than that does it go? The ICO is obviously starting to get involved and give some direction as to what explainable AI really should look like. But of course, it needs a lot of further thought and industry-wide collaboration, exactly as Kate said, to get to that position where we have some clarity around actually safeguarding the use of these programs in, in the workplace particularly. I think one of the ways to get around that to some extent in the absence of that regulation is the, in similar fashion actually to the uh, GDPRs, you know, privacy by design, security mm -hmm. by design that we see increasingly uh, coming into play at the moment, but getting the right people in the room at the outset, engaging your teams of lawyers, technologists, business owners, um, so that from the get-go, everyone can sit down and work together to identify those legal, practical, ethical, commercial and technical considerations that together all create uh, this, this big web that needs to be navigated through effectively um, and enable that carrying out of that sufficient and appropriate due diligence to identify those potential risks that might exist in relation to those technologies and address those in a way that you think as an organisation is suitable and is sensible given the fact that you know, we are still in the place where regulation is evolving. Well, that's all for today's podcast. Thanks for listening and thank you Kate and Alex for joining me today. Join us again when we talk about the Asia and Australia perspectives in the meantime, download our report via hsf.com slash futureofwork. Alternatively, you can contact me by email via jules.campbell at hsf.com.